the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program was pre-recorded, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. Welcome to Education Nation, where we tackle the biggest issues in American education. School is now in session. Here are your hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hagstrom and co-host Mark Durkin. Well, good evening, and thank you for joining us here on Education Nation. I am your headmaster and host, Rebecca Hagstrom, and it's a privilege to join you every Saturday evening here on AM 1280, The Patriot. And, of course, I'm joined in studio once again by our producer and co-host of Education Nation, Mark Durkin. And another good evening to you again, yes. Rebecca. Enjoying this July. Going fast. It is. I know. I cannot believe how quickly the time flies in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Well, over these last two years, the headlines have been dominated with news of high-profile actors, politicians, and businessmen embroiled in sexual harassment allegations. And this ultimately led to a national movement denouncing these behaviors and in many cases put an end to the careers of the accused before due process had a chance to bring conviction. The Me Too movement has raised uh, pressing issues, and they will be with us for a long time. And we can all agree that the action of those uh, who are sexually, excuse me, we can all agree that the actions of those who are sexually harassed are reprehensible and cause real misery that stays with its victims for years to come. They are the true victims. And as our guest for today has spent time researching and examining the roots that brought about the Me Too movement, it's clear that the movement's inception and presence in American culture was inevitable. Mm -hmm. She says our culture is hell-bent on separating pleasure from responsibility, and now is the time for the reflective part of the reckoning. This separation is also a large concern on the campuses of American schools, and after years of rampant underreporting of sexual assaults in schools, a group called Stop Sexual Assault in Schools launched Me Too K-12 campaign to spark conversation about the problem of sexual violence in public schools. In 2017, the Education Department's Office for Civil Rights examined various civil rights issues from 2009 through 2016. According to a U.S. News & World Report that was released in January, the office received 265 sexual violence-related complaints at the elementary and secondary education level Mm. and 534 such complaints at the post-secondary level, with the complaints increasing by more than 1,100% over the course of those seven years. It's just appalling, isn't it? Seven years isn't very long. And no, it's that's not. And a huge increase. It's very disturbing. And I'm glad, though, people are coming forth and aren't afraid right, to come out true. and say something about it. That's a good point. It. Yep, yep. You know, their goal is to encourage student victims of sexual violence to share their stories. And with stories of sexual harassment coming from all sectors of culture, 
there has been a shift in culture decades ago. And this shift has brought forth pain, confusion, countless violations against other human beings, and ultimately now alienating and creating a growing divide between males and females. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, is very concerning. Well, joining us by telephone to help bring clarity to this important issue is Catherine Kirsten. Last month, Catherine wrote a commentary piece for the Star Tribune titled Sex and the Single Mind, The Origins of the Me Too Movement. Catherine is also a writer, an attorney, a senior policy fellow, and founding director at the Center of the American Experiment, having also served as its chair from 1996 through 98. She has also served as a Metro columnist for the Star Tribune from 2005 to 2008, and before that was an opinion columnist for the paper for 17 years. She's been a guest multiple times on Education Nation and is a name that is recognized by the AM 1280 Patriot audience. Catherine, thanks again for joining us this evening. Always a pleasure. Yeah, well, thank you for being here. So I'm going to jump right in. In your article, you mentioned that the culture is drenched in graphic images of sexual exploitation, from music and movies to TV shows, video games, and essentially that sex is the single-minded pursuit of self-focused pleasure. And when we hear this, we've been conditioned to think that this is simply a problem for males. But Cosmopolitan, the world's leading women's magazine, um, and E.I. James, the female author of Fifty Shades of Grey, they're also conditioning women to buy into this depiction of themselves as sort of male, male playthings. Would you explain and kind of talk about this a little bit? Sure. It's, uh, it's, it's really noticeable to somebody like me who in the 50s and 60s and saw what women's magazines were like back then. <laughs> right. Uh, and now we have Cosmopolitan, which, as you say, is the best-selling magazine for women in the world. We've all walked by it, uh, at, you know, on grocery store counters, and uh, we know that uh, the, the, the fundamental idea of Cosmopolitan uh, is that it teaches women how to be hot, how to make themselves sexually desirable, sexually available, basically at the drop of a hat right. uh, to the men around them, as if you know this is the most important thing uh, in in life. Right. And uh, when we when we add to that, of course, you know when you, when you get started down this road, you always have to kind of amp up mm-hmm. the the level of eroticism, et cetera, mm-hmm. to continue to get that. That little tingle, yeah, and uh, we we see where that can lead um, with the recent success of the book and then film mm-hmm. Fifty Shades, Shades of Grey, uh, and of course there were several uh, sequels to that book. This was back in 2012, 13, mm-hmm. that it came out, and this this book uh, was actually. Uh, the fastest-selling book in history, uh, according to the way these things uh, are recorded. Uh, The author became the world's top earner, top-earning author, $95 million uh, in something short of a year. And, of course, this this book and this movie were aimed at uh, really almost entirely a female audience, and what's so concerning is that it was all about uh, the sadomasochistic abuse of of a, an innocent young woman by a powerful man. And turns out, women all across the world, like 156 million of these 
sold, uh, uh, just lining up for this. He just couldn't get enough of this sadomasochistic wow. you know, women. So, you know, it's just shocking. Just a, a new, a new development, I suspect, in uh, in history. Right, right, and just this idea that that would be, like you mentioned before, referring to the Cosmopolitan magazine, that that would be the most important pursuit on the part of a woman is so in opposition to the women's liberation movement of the 1970s. Yeah, and, and exactly. So I find it just so ironic that it's almost completely flipping and going back into a place where the women's liberation movement was born out of in the first place. Yes. And it's, it's really a head scratcher. Yeah, it really, it really, really is. But I think you're right that, that having that, uh, be so absorbed in our culture, it, it does, it just feeds into that notion that women are sexual objects and they're beginning to own it themselves. And uh, right. again, once again, which is very frightening. Well, you mentioned in your article also that prominent feminists have responded to the Me Too movement by discussing how women's own behavior is contributing to an apparent epidemic of sexual harassment, which is kind of like what we were, like what we were just talking about. And New York Times gender editor Jessica Bennett recently shared that sex today falls into a gray zone. What does she mean by this? And how is the definition working to condition how women respond to men? Right. Well, uh, it's interesting, uh, this this notion of a a so-called gender editor. Right. uh, Even that. A new one. (laughs) And it, it was created, this position was created very recently in response to the Me Too movement, which you described earlier mm-hmm. and uh so what surprised me as i as i read uh, what jessica bennett this new editor has to say mm-hmm. uh is that she she acknowledges that she and her friends and most likely almost all the women she knows are uh, and have been so for some time saying saying yes to sex uh, when they really mean no, and she describes this in detail oh in this piece. She, so she says that women today that 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 consent, as you say, is is generally uh, uh, falls within this gray zone. And what she means by that is what she calls begrudgingly consensual sex. And I'm quoting her. She says begrudgingly consensual sex because you know you don't really want to do it. But it's probably easier just to get it over with. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Unbelievable. And then to turn on that male that you did that with and then call yeah. that sexual abuse because they couldn't read your mind. Call it rape. Yeah. <laughs> right. Certainly. certainly. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, you know, this, this is again, it's, it's really mind boggling, isn't it? It's just it's, it's it, nothing but patterns it's, of it's, confusion. Well, and it sounds like children it to me. It sounds like a child. Uh, trying to explain that you know, well, I said I said this, but I didn't really mean it. But I, I wonder how much of it, though, is really about the game, the the pursuit, and yeah. this fact of okay, does that first no mean you know this is all part right. of the game, and he's going to try a little harder, which will turn the woman's heart? I don't know. I mean, yeah, it, I don't know. Oh, oh, you're absolutely right. I yeah. mean, I think a big part of the the, the sort of second wave feminist revolution, meaning not, uh, you know, equal pay. You know, we mm-hmm. can all agree uh, with that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the the, the, the sexual uh, 
revolution in, in terms of the way men and women are perceived uh, sexually. Um, I, I, it's so interesting to look at how, you know, I am woman, I am strong, uh, just morphed yeah. into yes. I, I am a, a fragile reed. Right. I have no will of my own. I have no uh, way to know my own mind or to say no and to push back. Right. And these two visions of of women have gone together yeah. and it's basically pulled out whenever they're useful. Right. Exactly. That's what I was just about cause. to say is it just yeah. kind of depends on the circumstances, which one you're going to use. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. You know, Catherine, in your commentary, you surmised that the cultural trends and the growing expectation in the view of sex, it finds really its roots in the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Right. If you mm-hmm. could, please explain the two fundamental ideas that you believe make up this ideological revolution. Sure. And of course, I and many of your listeners will have lived through this sex revolution and will recognize these. I think the first uh, idea behind the sexual revolution was the notion that women and men are exactly the same, uh, that, that women uh, should approach a potential sexual encounter uh, just the way a man would. And by this we, we mean a man uh, who has not, let's say, learned right from wrong. Yes, I was, I'm glad you added the, that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the biological male urge, let's say, untutored and unconstrained. Mm-hmm. I mean, sex is supposed to be, you know, the, the most important thing in life, according to them. And therefore, men and women in this kind of unreasonable, free love, I mean, that, mm-hmm. that notion, yep. uh, should, approach, should approach this as kind of a, uh, just an uh, just an opportunity for pleasure. Mm-hmm. Women aren't any more likely to be hurt by this than men. So that that was one of the that was the first idea I mm-hmm. think, and I remember that very well in my college days in the in the early seventies. And then the second idea was that sex uh, divorced from from marriage or any kind of committed relationship is just fine. Uh, and and won't lead to uh, harms mm-hmm. uh, be- because the sexual act is essentially a good in itself. I mean, it's this itch you need to scratch, and if you don't, um, your your this kind of Freudian notion, you're you're repressing yourself, and you know this urge will come out in in other ways. If mm-hmm. you feel it, you got to do it. If it feels good, do it. Yes. We all remember these. Yes. These right. catchphrases. So those yes. two ideas, I think, are, are at the heart of the sexual revolution yeah. in the 60s. And, oh, go ahead, Mark. I was just going to no, say something. I, I was no, just going to say, go with ahead. lots of consequences, which I know is what you're going to ask about mm-hmm. now. Right, and, and, and the context clues that Catherine you know, gives in that answer. I mean, what are some of the specific fallouts that have come from this sexual revolution? Well, gee, I mean, it, it's been at the heart of, of the major social problems we've faced yes. Yes. As, as a nation uh, in terms of the breakdown of the family, mm-hmm. in terms of the incredible rise of, of um, uh, illegitimate birth. Mm-hmm. I think when I was born in the, in the early 50s, it was something like 3% uh, of children uh, were born out of wedlock. And today, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for, for black children, it's... it's uh, 72%, much mm-hmm. higher in inner cities. Mm-hmm. For whites, it's about, uh, what, 30 
33% or so, and the general society about over 40%. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, is you know, the, the, the most obvious, but there are many, many others, including the heartbreak of the hookup culture on college campuses, right. the loneliness and the, the abuse, uh, the second guessing of oneself. I think girls' lack of self-confidence as they lose fathers in the home, yes. you know, willing to do anything to, to get a man to love them. All those things are yeah. related to this. Yeah. Oh, you, you so, so succinctly covered that. that you, you covered every single ramification of that sexual revolution that has gone yeah. through my head as you're talking. It's just a it's really sad. And and I think about all of the children who are being raised in those single family homes without fathers. And like you say, yeah. the consequence that that has then on the next generation and the next generation beyond that. Um, right. So this isn't this doesn't just end with one generation. This goes on and on. And that's why we see things really um, coming to a head right now yeah. in our culture. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, one of the people that you quoted in your article was Angela Franks, who's a Catholic theologian, and mm-hmm. she talked about how important context, uh, moral context, and, and loving relationships are to the sexual act. And one of the quotes that you read or you stated for her was, if an act has no uh, moral content or moral context, how do you know if you want it? Without a sense of true good in relationships, we don't know uh, to what we should consent. We're left with an arbitrary act of the will. And as a result, Frank says that women wrestle with the default of yes and that social seal of approval when it comes to potential sexual encounters. Yes. Um, can you kind of explain more about those two lines of thinking? Sure. So, so what she's talking about is that we, as a result of the, social, of the sexual revolution, we as a culture only have, we have a one-dimensional uh, standard by which to judge uh, any sexual act and, and by which to, to socially affirm or disaffirm it. And that is the idea of consent. Mm-hmm. Anything mm-hmm. is okay as long as both parties, quote, consent. Mm-hmm. And that means sadomasochism. That means, you know, just horrible sexual right. abuse of one party by the other, as long as both of them are said to consent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she's, she's saying, wait a minute, um, how do we, consent has no meaning, no real meaning in this context, because if there's no, if there's no, no content to this sexual act, there's nothing that's good, mm-hmm. nothing that's bad. How do we even know what we should consent to? And of course, there's there's the notion of pressure outside of that. There's the notion of of um, looking for love uh, and making a mistake. Uh, you know, especially for women who who haven't had positive male uh, influences in their their life. So that's that's what she's saying. All of this has led to this kind of general notion, which is unspoken, uh, of the default of the yes. And what she means by that is. If, you know, a woman entering into any potential social encounter um, knows that she is basically expected to say yes. Mm-hmm. She she may have some reason, well, you know, this guy uh, is too fat or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but she has no socially supported 
ways to say no and to, right. to, to say to the man, this is not right. And it's not only me because, you know, I don't like you, which can be hard. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uncomfortable mm-hmm. to say to someone. Right. It's expected she will do this unless she has comes up with an excuse. And, mm-hmm. and I saw the most interesting example of this in a recent piece in the Wall Street Journal. Now, you think of that as being a pretty conservative publication. Yeah. But no, <laughs> this is a long article explaining why, and it didn't say women, uh, but it, it meant women. Mm-hmm. Uh, it said if you, if you go on a date and you are, are not attracted to this, or you, you don't want to have uh, go to bed with this person, you should announce this right away, it says, <laughs> Because the expectation is that you will say yes, right? So it's kind of your duty to make it clear earlier. But you don't say, you know, I don't want to have sex with you. You say... Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm busy tomorrow. You know, I need to, I need to get home and get to bed or something. Oh my don't, goodness. Just, just because, but do it early on so that you won't have to deal with, um, you know, th- this expectation unspoken that, yeah, this is sex is a good thing, right? If we had um, a good time, so of course I'll go to bed with you. Yeah. So this is a Wall Street Journal and, and it just struck me as, as astounding. Yeah, that is astounding. Well, and like you referred to earlier, if there's no uh, cultural moral support for saying no from the context that it's wrong to have sex before marriage or it's wrong to have sex outside right. of marriage if you're already married, um, if there's no support for that culturally, which is what you're saying, then the only thing that's really left is for them to have sex because there's really no good reason not to, morally speaking. And so then you're only left with just the unimportant details like, well, I'm tired or I've got to go to work tomorrow or, you know, I don't really like you. And so then they don't want to say I don't really like you. So then they just do it just to get it over with. And then they accuse some, in some cases, accuse that person of rape. And um, And, and see, that's what Jessica Bennett, the New York Times uh, gender editor meant when she talked about the gray zone. Yeah. She she calls it begrudgingly consensual sex because you really don't want to do it, but it's easier just to get it over with because the presumption is that you will say yes. So let's just get it over with. Unbelievable. I find yeah. it just appalling. Yeah, I find it just appalling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. Well, Catherine, all of the cultural markings that we've are discussing here came into the public spotlight in the sexual assault case of now former New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman. And interestingly right. enough, he was casting himself as the champion of the Me Too movement, but then he defended his actions by appealing to our culture's one-dimensional standard of consent. So if you would, would you please explain for our listeners sure. the defense that this self-professed champion of this Me Too movement incorporated to justify his actions? His yes, well, it's, it's, so, it's so revealing. It, this, this guy uh, was really trumpeting himself as a great defender of women and so concerned about you know, sexual abusers being being brought to heel by the Me Too movement. And then it turned out that there were four women who accused him not only of, uh, of, of you know, sex that was inappropriate, but in, in some cases of violent sadomasochistic sex, you know, slapping them across the face and causing injuries. And, you know, it was, it was horrible. New York a long article about this. And what he said when he resigned is... Uh, that he had done nothing wrong. 
uh, I'm, I'm quoting him. He said, in the privacy of intimate relationships, I have engaged in role-playing and other consensual sexual activity. I have never engaged in non-consensual sex, which is a line I would not cross. <laughs> there we go with and, that and, consent again. Yeah. And you know what? He's, he's right. By what? If you, if you look at yeah. what these women did, and they were all progressive feminists, yeah. at least the ones who came forward publicly, and um, they, they, were, they were slapped, they were abused physically, humiliated by this thing. They kept coming back over and over. I mean, they had relationships of like a year, nine months, et cetera, with them. Never said anything in any public way. They kept coming back. They consented to, to this. But it, how terrible that our society has created an atmosphere where they, they apparently had this sense that they, that they were expected to do this yeah. or that, you know, this was okay. These are progressive, highly educated uh, liberal feminists who behave this way. Something's very wrong. There, something is very wrong when they're highly educated women. Um, yeah. that would submit themselves to that kind of treatment and then only after nine months or a year have the the courage to back away from it. It's just, yeah. it's shocking to me. Um, well, these cultural trends, you know, really are, are becoming more and more pervasive. And I know that one of our biggest problems that kind of contribute to all of this or are maybe a symptom of all of this is that they have the hookup culture on the American college campuses mm-hmm. that really mm-hmm. uh, promote the same type of thinking, not necessarily the, the sadomasochistic oh. piece, but the, you know, the, the pressure to consent. And they engage in casual sex with no expectation of an emotional connection even, which is shocking to me. And you quote an Indiana University psychologist, Debbie Herbenick, who said casual sex was happening before in college, but there wasn't the sense that it's what you should be doing. And it is now. Does this cultural right. practice still remain unopposed by school administrators? And if so, why? Right? Yeah, oh. it, it, it absolutely does. Yeah. Uh, and um, the, uh, one woman who's tried to expose this and did so anonymously initially because she was so concerned she might lose her job was a woman uh, whose name is Miriam Grossman, Dr. Miriam Grossman, who is a, uh, a like a psychologist, uh, psychiatrist, I forget which, at, I think it was, uh, it was USC or UCLA. This was maybe 15 years ago. Okay. And she wrote a book uh, about the, the, just the human carnage she saw that resulting from the hookup culture, the girls coming into her office, just, mm-hmm. just battered. I mean, emotionally mm-hmm. battered. And, um, and yet the, the administration uh, essentially refused because it doesn't fit the narrative, right? I mean, mm-hmm. women should be free to yep. have sex exactly as, mm-hmm. as they choose. It's, it is not only, I think, that administration's tolerate this but i went to yale university as a graduate student and uh was appalled to discover that oh i don't know maybe 15 years ago now or so yale university um well students started something called uh sex week at yale and it 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 coincides with valentine's day as i oh my gosh the vagina monologues you know that that stuff uh is sort of the feminist, unbelievably, you know, somehow yeah. this is pro-woman. Right. So, so Sex Week at Yale, believe it or not, for years now, they've been having hardcore porn stars come to Yale and demonstrate what? moves. Yep. 
to to the students. I mean, in in like various stages of undress, they have a student lingerie fashion show where oh you know girls you know, strut yeah. down a runway and yeah. the tiniest. Uh, I mean, on and on and on. It's it's frankly, again, yeah. You just you say, how do we? Shocking. So, so you're supposed Shocking. to be able to do that, yeah. right? And you see yeah. that as your right as a woman, and then you're surprised when men take you seriously, right? And say, okay, you know, <laughs> I'm going to do it. Well, so yeah, yeah. You know what, Catherine? We have to wind up. We are already out of time. But this whole concept of quote unquote feminism leading to freedom of sexual um, encounters is really leading to a lot of depression. And I want our listeners to really research this for themselves. So thank you for joining us, Catherine Kirsten. We are so grateful to have you on the show. And we pray that our, we hope that our listeners will enjoy our discussion and listen to us again next week on Education Nation, AM 1280, The Patriot. Thank you so much. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.